Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, my name is Helen Parton. I'm an architecture and design journalist, and welcome to Who's Your Daddy? Or, as uh, certain panel members have pointed out, it should be Who's Your Mummy? Who's Your Stepdad? Who's Your Stepmother? But anyway, we're going to talk about um, the uh, concept of privilege in architecture. So, I've been looking forward to this for months because I think this was concocted um, quite a long time ago in terms of subject matter and something that I'm um, really passionate about. Um, you can tell by my accent that perhaps I didn't grow up on the completely the wrong side of the tracks in, uh, in Cheshire. But um, I came to London 20 years ago, uh, I know, and um, it was um, a case of not really knowing anyone in the creative industries whatsoever and kind of building up my own contacts and building up um, my own career step by step. And then the longer I spent in journalism, um, and I think probably the same is true in a lot of creative industries, the more and more I had conversations along the lines of, Oh well, of course, my my father was a you know an architect, or uh, my mother was an, an an editor, and it dawned on me that um, yeah, to some degree, in the in the words of the great Calvin Harris, um, <laughs> the uh, the creative industries are run by rich people's children. Now that's just one point of view, and um, we're going to get a uh, a take on that from our panel. Um, I wanted to put some context to this, so um, I did some actual research and read an actual report from the Arts Council, uh, supported by the Arts Council, which said, it was all about, um, it's called panic, um, social class, taste and inequalities in the creative industries. Uh, and it says, currently a key characteristic of the British cultural and creative workforce is the absence of those from working class social origins. And there's an awful lot of fancy diagrams and whatever in the rest of it, but um, that's the nub of the matter. Um, and there's a really lovely wheel of, wheel of occupations in that report. And uh, architects is one of them, actually. And uh, one of the uh, findings in the report was that um, a lot of creative industry, people who work in creative industries, only really hang around with other people who work in creative industries, which creates a culture of only people who know people get to work in those industries. Um, so, um, that's quite a lot of talking from me. Um, oh, I should point out Reba. We can mention them after last time I chaired the talk, right? So, um, <laughs> also doing a roadmap into social mobility, looking at everything from um, school-age children up to access to um, getting into the profession to continuing development and education. So, you know, there is a piece there that maybe I'll return to about how our panel feel about that. Um, I couldn't help but think of um, AOC's uh, maxim about if you can't see it, then you can't be it, which um, I think is something to bear in mind. Um, 
And also, I guess we'll talk about, maybe it's not just privilege, but maybe it's tenacity, timing, different factors that contribute to where our panelists and indeed where you have got to today. So um, for those of you who haven't been to an Agoni talk before, the format is thus. Our panelists will um, give a short um, standpoint about where they're coming from on this particular topic. And then therein will follow some questions from me. But crucially, audience members, there will be some questions from you. So um, as mentioned before, we want a kind of cafe society dynamic. We want, uh, we want some quite lively debate. Don't stand on ceremony, please. Jump in and we'll try and get as many questions answered as possible and go from there. So without further ado, our panel. Um, to my left and kicking things off. <laughs> that will be you. We've got Lee Ivert, who is a founder of Baxendale, which is an art, architecture, and interiors agency. Um, Lee, you'll give, you'll give us a potted history of where you've come from, but I'll summarise. So you're born and brought up in Preston, educated in Scotland, yeah. now living in London, but still <laughs> not living in London. Just here for the day. For three hours. Yeah. <laughs> I can see this is where this is going to go already. Um, <laughs> then we have um, Zayana Strelitz, um, founder and director of ZZA Responsive User Environments, um, whose background in so social anthropology, town planning, um, and architecture has informed her practice. Um, uh, yes, and then we've got um, Fergus Fielden, who's over there, <laughs> bafflingly, location-wise. Um, uh, who uh, started um, Field and Fowls um, 10 years ago next year with Edmund Fowles um, and has done some amazing projects and was on my power list when I edited an office, I think. So, um, yeah, that's not an accolade. I don't know what is. Um, so you'll be talking through your work, which spans um, workplace, obviously, um, community and education and more, which you'll be finding out. And then um, we've got Tahira Roof, who's over here, associate, RC Care Architects. Um, Graduate of East London University, um, here to talk about her many anecdotes, good and bad, within the field of architecture, and um, here to give us um, some insights that yeah, I think will contribute vitally to our discussion this evening. And we've got Abe Rogers, who is at the end of the bar. How can we miss him in that pink t-shirt? <laughs> um, so you'll know Abe, founder of Abe Rogers Design, based just, what, there? There. Okay, all right. So we've got um, got our panel introduced. Um, take it away, Lee. Thank you very much. Wow. What? Can everyone hear me if I talk like this? <laughs> <laughs> Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Okay, okay. Right. Lee, I'll, I'll Lee, try this one. This might be all a right. bit better. The thing with the, the mic is it makes me feel like I should sing a song. <laughs> like kind of sat on the stool by the bar all kind of super casual. Uh, should start kind of breaking into some kind of blues jazz standard. Right. Excuse me a minute while I look at my prepared notes on this mobile phone thing. Right, okay, so good evening. I've been summoned from the north, possibly to act as this evening's token bit of provincial rough. Now, I'm so desperately northern that the north that I'm actually from, Preston, was not actually north enough for my liking. So I just kept on going until I reached Glasgow. So I could feel what it was like to be from the South and to automatically be considered an overprivileged wanker with an unflinching sense of entitlement. And it feels pretty good. 
Or maybe it doesn't feel that good because actually we're all here feeling guilty about something because we're all looking around the profession at the moment and we're seeing that actually there's people missing within that profession. Uh, and sometimes uh, and often that's people of colour, it's gender, it's sexuality. And this evening it's a discussion about class and background and where people are, are from. Um, recently, I had one of the better and more interesting conversations about architecture with the lady who runs Easy Rent Car and Van Hire in Preston. Um, and, and whilst I was trying to distract her from noticing I was trying to uh, use my girlfriend's credit card to pay for her van, um, I was kind of talking about how I'd recently started teaching architecture in my hometown of Preston and how I was trying to kind of deal with a very, very different population and a different type of student than I was used to when I taught for nine years in Glasgow at the Macintosh School of Architecture, where a lot of my students had been to something called a finishing school. And now a lot of my students have barely finished school. And in Preston, uh, being finished means something totally different than uh, <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> whatever it means if you've been to a finishing school. But what me and... Um, the lady in Easy Rent, Karen Van Hyer, were, were talking about was really that she, as um, someone who actually inhabits architecture and spends time in public space, considered architecture to be something quite obscure, something rare, something that's only accessible through some form of invitation or, or by being permitted. She'd actually never considered that things like housing, shops, offices were or could be architecture. And I think for a lot of people um, that, you know, in ordinary life, kind of have been conditioned to consider and believe that architecture isn't really something for them. It's something other, for other people, for other places. It's either lifestyle or spectacle, grand designs or the Guggenheim. In the media, if it isn't either of those things, then it's usually tragedy or farce. Architecture has become the go-to scapegoat for many of society's ills. Slums, schemes, sink estates, schools that fall apart, museums that cost too much, parliaments that take too long to build, big box retail destroying our town centres, cycle lanes that crash into bush shelters, and the proliferation of developer-led suburban housing all spreading like a virus of banality. All of these things are kind of symptoms of a systemic and professional failure that lowers the aspirations of common society and stifles creativity, innovation, and agency amongst not just ordinary people or ourselves, but planners and designers. And as a profession, we seem trapped in a cycle of trying to produce the least worst instead of trying, what we know, trying to do what we know to be the best. I feel like we've maybe given up on the ordinary, on ordinary life and ordinary lives. And perhaps, actually, that's where the extraordinary truly lies and where we can find it. In answer to the question, who's your daddy? His name is Glenn. Uh, he's from East Lancashire, and then moved to Blackpool, and then moved to Preston. And he's an amazing, beautiful human being. But my privilege was not an inheritance of wealth or connections, or being the next in line within a family of designers, artists, architects, etc. It was having a childhood witnessing my dad doing everything himself. I grew up thinking it was normal to build your own garage, to fix your own washing machine, to landscape your own garden, to restore a car, to lay your own path. I grew up thinking I could put my mind to anything. I'm not sure if it was confidence in his parenting, or perhaps more likely he clocked I was a fucking genius from a very early age. But I always remember him telling me that I could be anything. Son, you could be anything. And I've never doubted it. 
Even when I felt depressed and anxious about my own work, my own abilities or actions, I still believe. I think that ultimately, that regardless of our individual backgrounds, that most people here tonight and anyone who is fortunate to find themselves involved within architecture has a right and a duty to extend and share their privilege, no matter what form that might take. And that is perhaps a privilege that we all share, a shared privilege, which is an unflinching certainty that we can and that we should. I think our role is maybe to make everyone in society feel this way about themselves and to create a profession and then through the application of architecture, a society where there is possibility without prejudice. Thank you. Hi, does this sound strange? Fine. Um, so here's the thing. Who here tonight uh, never moans about aspects of architectural practice? Anybody? No. So there's a list that uh, since I have been in this field, I cannot remember a time when people didn't complain about attrition in the competition system, uh, exploitation of design and planning, low fees, low pay, indecisive clients, incompetent planners, unfair procurement, brutal value engineering, compromising design and build, users who don't get your design intentions, and unworthy, undeserving rivals. So, um, you know, if that's what it's like for so many people, at least some of the time, I don't really know what the focus on privilege is about. And of course, privilege and deprivation are both relative concepts. But I think that um, part of the um, idea that I feel underlies the framing of the concept tonight is really a, um, a wish to reinforce our identity and to convince people who may have made their career decision some time ago that actually it was not so bad a choice after all. So that's my take on privilege. Let's move on to parents. Uh, now, hands up anyone in the room who has never doubted that the person who they presumed to think was their biological father might not have been. <laughs> well, I've tried to frame it in a diplomatic way. Anybody who does not who has never doubted that the person who they grew up thinking was their biological father might not have been the actual man. Okay. So, technology is more than economically disruptive. So, a couple of weeks ago at the Hay Festival, Professor Ian Cullinan, who's head of Health Education England, uh, proposed that on studies of uh, genetic testing that had been done for Britons for reasons other than the determination of paternity, 10% of people were found not to have been fathered by the person who they think is their father. Now, uh, obviously that's an average, and I leave you to ponder whether the figure uh, spikes or dips in the architectural community. But, you know, you might really say, well, does biological lineage matter? Because 
I think that uh, many people would agree that actually it's your exposure to interests that is much more formative. And uh, although we think of professions like politics and journalism, uh, sorry, Helen, as being dynastic and nepotistic, the fact is that interest formation is determined by, heavily determined by your family's interests in whatever sector you operate. It's not confined to architecture, journalism, politics, medicine, law, um, and the converse is also true. So whilst there might be lots of people in this room who spend family holidays tramping around cities, visiting buildings, chilling out in the countryside. Certainly, the obverse is true. And in my family, we never had a dinner discussion about banking, uh, marine biology, uh, driving trains, or making zips. I mean, it just is not the way the world works. So why architects should be particularly hung up about um, the transmission of shared interests relative to people who have any other occupation, I just don't get. So there are some apples that do fall far from the tree. Okay, I do understand. It might be because your genetic endowment was different from what you thought it was. It might be because you found your own spark, you had your own awakening, you saw your own horizons. And traditionally, the uh, significant others who would have helped to nurture those interests were very involved other people, like particularly teachers. And for anyone who hasn't seen Rocket Man, uh, I thoroughly recommend it. It's a wonderful take on Elton John's life. And if he hadn't had, with he, he happened to have very uninterested and unfacilitative parents. And if he hadn't had a school teacher who had recommended that he audition at the Royal Academy of Music and a grandmother who stepped up to go with him from Pinna into town, you know, all that latent potential might not have been. But we all know that teaching is under strain and teachers can't step up to all of the uh, passions and after uh, care that they used to give because they're so busy doing other things like cleaning loos. And we also know that important programs like Sure Start that have been very influential in early parental awakening of the importance of child development for later life have been scuppered by the cold hand of austerity. And these really are problems for social mobility. But they aren't the responsibility of people in architecture. They are a general social problem. And I feel that people in this room, like everyone else, needs to uh, engage themselves in the reality. So. I've, having backed off, um, you know, thinking it's a problem, there is one axis that does bug me a lot, and that is the prominence of um, architectural practices that are run by a male protagonist, normally taking his name, that are hugely shored up with the input of uh, a female, who's very often also a wife, and I think these are really problematic. Now, of course, we happily know that it doesn't have to be so. Thank you, Sadie Morgan. Thank you, Claire Wright. Thank you, Elizabeth Diller. Uh, 
you know, there are very good role models of people who are in practices with partners and have equal visibility. But to the extent that boys keep being given and accepting gongs and prizes and medals, and um, I think it is something that we should push back much, much harder against because what that does do is to eclipse for young women that there is the potential of a significant architectural future for them. So to end on a sort of cautiously positive note, I think that, you know, it is the revolution. It's the uh, digital industrial revolution that we're living through. And I think we can't have this conversation without zooming out and noting that so many job work opportunities, economically active opportunities today, uh, don't have a past. They aren't transmissible from parents. They didn't have a precedent. And they do represent a very open opportunity for social mobility. And what's so important that comes with them is that when, uh, while young people who learn from their parents the codes and language of established norms, with all of this comes huge disruption and hugely new ways of expressing them yourself. So that the kind of reign of establishment is uh, is lost in with this new opportunity, and I think that's really promising. Okay. Hi, I'm Fergus. Um, I do come from an architectural background, so my dad was an architect. Um, and uh, but I, I, my kind of privilege was mainly through kind of through my parents' attitude to life and trying things and the opportunities that provided. I think that it's interesting how many kind of assumptions are always made about people. Um, uh, and w I've been told numerous times about how we get given all our work because of his practice and all sorts of things. But uh, he, d he died when I was 21 and I'm 36 now and I'm still kind of, it's interesting that kind of shadow thing, which is, um, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't a privilege, there's a huge privilege, but the privilege is really, was, was all to do with an attitude, having, having kind of having two parents and being supported in trying all sorts of things. So I think it wasn't so much uh, monetary, but it was just that, that sense that somebody's kind of, somebody's got your back if you, if, if, if you fail and therefore you don't worry about failing and you, you try or when you do fail, you're still kind of self-confident enough to, to pick yourself up. I mean, I think Lee was talk, touching on that earlier and it's, I think that, that's absolutely huge and that's something I've been trying to kind of give my kids as, I've, uh, as they've been growing up. Um, I nearly didn't become an architect because of those exact questions, because of that kind of assumption. So I took all science A-levels and I was gonna do medicine and then I went for a long walk with my dad one day and he said, you know, tell me exactly why you're, why you're doing this. And I said, well, I'm doing it so I'm not the same as you. And he said, is that really like, you know, gonna determine your whole life? Uh, if, you, if you study architecture, you probably won't become an architect statistically anyway, but it is where your kind of passions are. So, so I kind of switched halfway through A-levels and, and went for architecture. And kind of thank God I did, because during my third year when he died, I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a liberation, actually. It was kind of, I felt, 
personally, like it was saying, you can be your own architect, you can be your own person. Um, and and that, that was kind of significant, except that I never got to share kind of being a professional architect with him, which was a bit different. Um, so one of the reasons that we, like my practice, doesn't do much domestic work, interestingly, is because I went back to my old school, so it's kind of co-educational state school uh, in privileged Bath, but I went back to talk to them about, um, about uh, access work for people who didn't come from the same kind of backgrounds getting into architecture. And uh, so I was doing that talking to some sick formers and the staff and things, and that's when they said, well, look, we actually don't know what we're doing with our site. And the site was an absolute mess, like most state schools, uh, which take pockets of funding. And we did them quite an elaborate master plan for six grand at the time, which did, we didn't realize was the kind of most important job for us that, you know, probably one of the most important things in our whole kind of trajectory. So we're still working with the school. We've now rebuilt kind of about, a, I don't know, a third of it. And weirdly, my daughter's going there next year. So that's, that's quite nice. Um, and actually, coming, coming to her briefly, so she's 11 now. And I, I had her when I was 24, just before, like four days before my part two started, which again, is not probably like the best planning. Um, and uh, if it were my wife giving this talk, she would give you a very different kind of outlook on, on the trials and tribulations. And I don't, think, uh, I don't think she's enjoyed it much. And I think only in about the last year, she said, all right, fine. It was worth you kind of pursuing it. And it's, it's probably is sensible at last. Um, so um, yeah, I, uh, let me have a think. So. Um, I think I think one of the things which which having having a family fairly young did for me was meant that I generally haven't hung out with architects and it was quite interesting getting here earlier and realizing I didn't recognize virtually any faces I mean now I can see like I can see beyond it I've, I I know a few people I know Russell I've, I've met Lee you know there's a few few others but interestingly it's quite unusual to go somewhere in the architecture world where you don't really know anyone but that that has been kind of key in us winning work as well because we're not spending that much time with architects. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It, in fact, it would be great. I'd love to spend longer. But we just, the people that we've been spending most of our time with are kind of existing clients, non-London architects, non-London clients. Like um, We've always kind of gone to wherever the work is. And so we're doing a job at Carlisle. And I'm sure that it was pretty hard to get a job at a cathedral anyway. But I'm sure that that helped that we were saying, we don't mind getting up early, you know, and getting on the 5.30 train. And yes, we'll do that for the next, you know, it's, well, it's been five years so far. So it's, um, and so lots of our work, lots of our kind of significant jobs have been out of London, have been out of the bubble. And that's really, that's really helped us enormously, I would have said. So, um, and we have won, we've won lots of commissions through networks which we've built up there. So, you know, there is a, it's still a form of privilege, but at least they're kind of connections that we've been making. Um, so, you know, when you work for a non-domestic architect and they're a trustee on various different committees, they might say, well, put them on a short list or something. And, uh, and so that, that really, you know, there's no doubt that kind of, that helps. Um, but guilt kind of does, it hangs over many of us, you know, all the time. And I think it's something which, we're kind of, there's a constant sense of checking your privilege. And, but in general, I don't know that guilt kind of, it, it, I think you've got to use it constructively. So 
we try to do that through looking at where we're working, the types of work, the kind of social aspects of the jobs that we're working on. And I did a little kind of uh, evaluation of the practice earlier. So we're not a very big practice. Um, we're 16 at the moment, but there's, uh, I'm the only one in the practice who comes from an architecture or who has a parent who's an architect. Um, uh, then I had a look, 25% of the practice went to private school. That was quite interesting. I've never kind of looked at it. Um, we're kind of we're only 20% kind of diverse, I would say, in terms of ethnic minorities. That's it's not probably it might be reflective of the profession, but it's not great. Um, I don't know. I just had a quick run through a whole load of things, and it's it was really interesting. So I, I think that's also why I think evenings like this evening are really good because it makes us all have a have a have a look in the mirror and say, well, what what are we doing? Who's who? Who are we surrounding ourselves with? Um, so yeah, no, I think I think that's pretty much all I've got to say. But uh, I think it's great to talk about these things, and that's why I think uh, I was certainly keen to come along this evening, um, and and hear everyone else's backgrounds and views. So anyway, thanks. Yep. Hello. Um, uh, this is a novel experience for me and the first time I'm sitting here talking to a group of people. So I'm a bit nervous, um, mainly because I'm going to be sharing quite personal stories. Um, some of them are funny, some of them are not. Some of them are quite serious, but um, I hope I can get kind of a lived experience across to you. Um, I was an undergraduate at the University of East London when I first experienced what it meant to be privileged. It didn't go too well. Well, not for me, but my, for my friend Joe, who's sitting over there drinking loads of a Negroni. Um, Joe was, it was very talented, and it was one of those crit days, and she hadn't finished a model, and uh, in classic architecture school fashion, somebody, the, one of the crit members said to her, you know, why haven't you finished? And she said, well, because I ran out of money. I didn't have enough money to pay for the model. And then they said to her in a really matter-of-fact way, well, if you don't have money, maybe you should think about dropping out and coming back when you do. And that's a true story. Um, what I recognized that day was that there are some people in the world who get a free ticket to get ahead in society, and there are others who do not. I understood that the playing field was rigged in favor of those who are better off, paler skinned male, and came from a middle class, class suburb. I soon realized that maybe that the profile that would follow me around and set me apart from my colleagues in architecture would probably go, in the lines of, go along the lines of this. I am one of six siblings from a challenged part of Tower Hamlets. I grew up around here, actually, a stone, stone's throw away from, from uh, this, where we are now. I am not the son of a bus driver, as everyone seems to hear all the time, but I am a daughter of a factory worker father and a seamstress mother. My parents my farming parents were economic migrants and moved to um, London from the rural kind of, uh, farming, farms of Silet. Um, we were lucky to have free meals, let alone have enough money to go to the PFC chicken shops that graced our street corners. Um, but today I'm not going to tell you facts and figures or lecture you about what it means to be privileged. I am going to share, you, share to you my story. And my first job as a graduate in architecture my male, middle-aged boss, who would never consider himself a bigot and would probably place himself somewhere uh, centre-left politically, frequently told me that he actively recruited Cambridge graduates as apparently they were naturally brighter and smarter and had an edge above others. 
I guessed he wasn't talking about me. I realised that my differences included something like where I graduated from was setting me apart from the people that I was working with. I was being scrutinised differently. To prove that I was equally smart, I knew I had to work doubly harder than the, the, the colleagues around me. I stayed in architecture, somehow my East London accent dropped and I, it turned into something like this. Um, sometimes it does drop back into the East London accent when I'm really pissed off, but right now I'm a bit nervous, so I'm going to put on my posh voice. Uh, I started to listen to Radio 4, and I even bought a tagine and cooked Moroccan food. I mean, how about that? My career developed, I became an architect, developed my first project, left my parents' house finally, to their happiness, got married to a a Spanish man who is over there looking after a baby. Um, I even climbed the proverbial career ladder and became an associate and the first female sen senior member of staff in the company 10 years history. Despite all of this, there are still some things I couldn't shake. I am still mistaken as the assistant in meetings over my male counterparts. Answers to my questions are often, uh, are often directed to my male bosses and not to me. And often in, I don't know if other female members get this, but uh, often in networking events, people always ask me, somehow the conversation ends up on how I manage working life and motherhood. Um, it's well documented that privilege exists. What is detrimental is that in, it inhibits diversity. And we can all agree diversity is good for society and business. Perhaps to fundamentally tackle this issue is less about meeting a diversity quota or about having the that picture in the kind of company website. Um, and, it's, and it's about those times when you find yourself in that meeting and you see those people that are excluded from conversation that you make a point to find common ground with them. That you truly ask yourself, why do you trust one person over another? And open your mind to somebody that may not be your age, gender and ethnic group. In both the proverbial and literal sense, diversity is colourful. As architects, we are interested in people and how people use the space that, that we want to know the nuances, that we want to know the differences, and so that we can design meaningfully. Then why not surround ourselves in a melting pot that would stimulate and inspire us? Some people say you should be judged on your merits and not be discriminated either positively or negatively or you know, meeting that quota because that's the right thing to do. I say, in the ideal world, that makes complete sense. But from day dot, that would also mean that we all start from the same starting line and that our opportunities are equal from the moment that we start the race all the way through, through to the finishing point. And until then, but, un but until then, we're in an unequal society and profiling does exist. I want to know, I want to end on this. How do you profile me? Does it matter that I can't pronounce the word quinoa? Quinoa? What is my abiding legacy? Is it that I'm an architect? Or is it that I'm a female architect? Or is it that I am a Bengali female architect? So imagine if we lived in a world where diversity was champion. Perhaps my profile might go along the lines of this. I am a daughter of factory, wor I'm daughter of factory workers. I live in the one of the most diverse neighbourhoods in London, a melting pot of people from all over the world. I am both British and Sileti and I love eating onion barges stuffed with dates every day that I break fast in Ramadan. 
My earliest memories are growing up in a big, lively family with lots of brothers and sisters. I am an architect, an associate, and a member of the Salads community. If you don't know what Salads is, we do a tour company, by the way. Uh, please sign up to our mailing list. <laughs> we'll find out more later, exactly. <laughs> I love speaking, but I hate public speaking, as you can tell. I work in a place where I meet people from all walks of life and from different backgrounds that offer novel perspectives that stimulate and inspire me. So really, what is privilege? Am I privileged to be standing here sharing my experience with you, or are you privileged to be sitting here listening to my story? Thank you. I feel I come from a kind of counter position to the, to the, to, to the last talk and her incredibly articulate speech. Coming from a ridiculously privileged situation of a, a father who is a very famous architect, a mother who is an architect, a stepfather who is an architect. And to have architecture always talked around every conversation and everywhere we went, it followed us. It was an, an endless uh, whisper. Um, but I, I left school with two O-levels, um, having taken them twice and having failed pottery twice and really wanted to rebel against this, this world. And I, I learnt Mockney from a very early age and dis disguised my uh, overly privileged education with, a, with more of a South London accent. It seemed easier to do than, a, than an East London at, 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 that, at that point. I became a cabinet maker. I learned to roll very good joints and to smoke a lot of pots and, and to, to, to really to get quite lost in, in, in different parts of the, of the world. I drifted to Liverpool where there was spaces that you could make things in. And I soon discovered I was better at designing than potentially making. Um, and through that process, I managed to get into the, to the Royal College of Art, which would be something very difficult to do in, in these day and ages without a BA or an A-level, um, but a, a little simple city and, 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 and guilds. Um, and not only did I get into the Royal College of Art, but I got paid to, to the, go to the Royal College of Art, even though I was from a crazily privileged world and there is no doubt to me that the thing that would change so much of what we're talking about today if education was free again and in fact if a grant system applied and if there was a way that people could access the privilege of education of uh, meeting other people from different backgrounds if it wasn't about the the linear paths of Cambridge um, and and schools with, with, with coming straight straight through if we could shake it all up in, in, a, in a very different way. I think if you look at art schools in the, in the 70s and the 80s, they produced all of the punk bands because everyone was, was, was coming next to each other. And now the schools have become more and more ivory and we, we sit in these you know, incredible bubbles, as, as, as someone talked about earlier. When I ran the interior design department at the Royal College of Art, I could not believe how insular the architecture students were. And they were the only people that would not go out and mix with, with the fashion students or the industrial design students or the, or the art students because it became such a, such a vacuum. So there is a problem within the, the whole field of particularly architecture, I think, which is it can only talk to, it, to itself. And until we can really break out of that, we are going to be, to, be, to be stuck. I still am not an architect. I have an amazing architectural partner who sits across Ernesto Bartolini, and we are two white men who, who run a, a, a medium-sized practice of, 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 of 22 people. But the, we try to distill a very equal uh, dynamic across. We are very mixed gender, mixed race, not through any quotas, but just through a sort of natural 
organic, you know, choosing people that seem to suit and, and strive for, 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 for similar things. I mean, it's a very, very scary world at the moment. When we sit and we look at the two potential new leaders of the country coming from Oxford um, and, and, and private schools and looking almost quite identical and both as foolish as, as, as each other. So we need to do things to, to, to shake it all up. We need to do things to, 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 to question the privilege. But I think, you know, the, the, for me, the greatest privilege I received was the privilege of confidence and being allowed to be eccentric and to be different and to be allowed to leave school with two O levels and not really worry and believe there was a potential beyond that. And I think, you know, being super dyslexic, which is probably why I left school with, with two O-levels, had I been from a different background, I probably would have ended up in prison. Because part of being very dyslexic is you don't really understand boundaries or spaces. And it is only being, being held by the, or kind of nurtured by this, this very privileged environment that we are, are talking of that, that kept me on the, the, the straight and narrow. And then maybe discovering other things which, which fascinated one um, a, 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 along the way. I think you know, we, we need to create change and we need to, to question um, the, the, the system and we need to do things in a, in a very, very different way. Um, you know, it, it's fascinating to see what the London School of Architecture down the road is starting to do, which is to try and to break the dynamics of this privileged, paid system. Um, I think that's all I really want to, to, to say. I think many great words have been said tonight um, the last speaker, particularly in her extraordinary story. Yeah. Thanks, Abe. And thank you, panellists. <laughs> so, Lee, in your, um, in your notes to me, you, um, you talked about what the perception of what an architect looked like, I guess, particularly when you know, you're in school or one is in school. And uh, I love the quote about a super pretentious poncy geek with limited social skills as being the, um, as a stereotype. So let's roll back maybe to your school years and maybe you to hear as well. What a speech, by the way. Um, <laughs> to sort of see what the attitude was from that level and, and maybe just sort of build up from, from there. Lee? Yeah, I mean, I think that the... I mean, I've, like I mentioned, I've, I taught um, at Glasgow School of Art for about nine years. I never really felt that I kind of fitted in there. And, and I got the job there because they thought, oh, this is a guy who sounds a bit different and does different kind of work. But then when you're in there, they're like, can you be a bit more like we are uh, and not be so much yourself, actually? And so it was kind of uh, interesting... Um, Last summer, uh, a job came available to become course leader at uh, School of Architecture in Preston, where I'm from. Um, school's only eight years old. Um, we only have 30 or 40 students in a year. And the kind of demographic is exceptionally different. But what I've found is that, you know, among some of the staff and in terms of some of the kind of expectation of architectural education, there is still a kind of very normative, traditional type of architectural education getting applied in a condition that isn't full of normative architectural types. And there's still a kind of emphasis on the monochrome, something called the canon. I had a few students come up to me and go, some of our lecturers keep talking about this thing called Pilotti. What the fuck is it? And I was like, well, you know, maybe you should know this kind of rarefied Italian or Latin language. Or maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we just say it's a stick that holds someone up. It doesn't really 
matter to me. You know, it's more about kind of, do you have an empathy? Uh, do you have an openness? Um, and I think traditionally architecture has kind of put people in a situation where, like you were saying, you kind of end up trying to, you, you listen to Radio 4 and you wear certain clothes and you kind of start to go to certain things and you start to think that you need to behave uh, and kind of acquire a set of behaviours that you think kind of validates you within a certain profession and that is really, really sad uh, and it's a shame and I think we all have a responsibility to try and just break that apart a bit and uh, find space to be ourselves and talk as we are and behave as we are and be as we are. Tira, do you have something to add on that point? I'm sure you do. <laughs> no, I, I think one of the hardest things I found going to university and being in architecture, actually, um, that I think my si brothers and sisters who went to university didn't experience was we have this, this tendency to always to be verbose. Why are we always using really flowery language to explain things? And what I realised that the minute that you s begin to introduce really complex words and languages, and I know sometimes in architecture we need to include that, you begin to exclude lots of different people. And the same things, like you were saying, how actually you could say something very simply, and, but we always somehow make it complicated. Um, I felt that that was the hardest things, kind of grappling with language um, and understanding what people were saying to me, really. Sorry? Yeah, massively. I think it has a big influence, yeah. I, and there was a, um, a story that I didn't include because I think it was going to make it too long. Um, but I'll, I'll shoehorn it in now. Um, so I, when I first graduated and I joined uh, the practice that I did, I'm not going to name who it was or who, where it was. No, definitely not you, Russell. You're safe in this. You were really, uh, definitely not. It was way before. I, I, I'm really old, so it was when I first graduated and I, and I joined the practice. Um, very first thing the director that said to me um, was, you sound like Vicky Pollard. I don't know if you remember uh, Vicky Pollard from Great uh, Little Britain. Uh, so he used to often kind of repeat, every time I'd say something, he'd repeat back to me, uh, yeah, but, no, but. And I would always be really embarrassed, but he'd say it to me, and he thought it was hilarious, and everyone around him would laugh, like, hysterically. Um, and that was really disconcerting, but I, had, I sort of went along with it, because that's what it is, you know, you laugh. But I think those mini, those small things sort of, begin to set you apart, you begin to realise, actually, I'm a little bit different, and I'm not the same as the other person. Um, um, Fergus, you've got a different perspective on um, education in terms of um, your how you got the your work within the education sector was actually being was an ambassador or going in and, and talk, working with schools about the architectural profession. Perhaps you can talk about about that a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, we kind of we we kind of stumbled into it in a way because it wasn't it, we we were desperate to get out of doing domestic work like many architects are because the clients are doing a one-off and it's their baby but they don't really understand you know time and <laughs> money and all the rest of the things so we were yeah exactly we were terrible marriage counselors so we just couldn't we, I mean to be honest you know I have full respect for anyone who can cope with that because you need to manage people so tightly but we didn't want to do that so we went in I went in to talk to them about that and um, and we were kind of I was uh, it was just me and I was observing about the school site and saying god it gets worse every year you know I mean it was just it was such a bloody mess it was a school designed for 300 that had grown to 900 and they'd it'd been based around courtyards and every courtyard had a shitty building put in it there were kind of temporary buildings that were supposed to last five years they'd been there for 30 years 
And they said, yeah, but we don't know how to kind of get out of this, but we, we, we do want to do something. Would you be interested in helping us try and do this? And we started doing this, this master plan, which was all about landscape, because we were like, well, you won't have any money. And they said, why are you not being ambitious? You know, we don't want to live in this kind of this shit. And so that was quite interesting. So we then started putting some bigger bigger things around and delivering tiny, tiny little projects initially. Um, and they kind of, they, they grew over time. So, um, and the school went from being a local authority school to being an academy, multi-academy trust. And our growth's kind of gone with them and we're working with the other people. And we do loads of stuff. You know, we still go back and give loads of kind of talks and things because there's just a connection. And it's, uh, I don't, you know, you don't monetize that kind of stuff. It's you look after the people who looked after you, and there's, uh, I think any client who takes on a young practice is taking a massive step. So we've, yeah, we've tried to kind of maintain those relationships. Okay. All right. Um, as we go along, if anyone's got a comment or a question, then just raise your hand and we can come to you and hear your point of view. Um, she says, eagerly scanning the room. Okay, so, Abe. <laughs> oh, hang on, we've got someone straight off the bat. Thanks, Steve. Um, I just, I'm interested in uh, why the lady at the end there, what, what made you do architecture? You've got um, uh, siblings in, in university, but they weren't architects. And I mean, it's an interesting leap, you know, isn't it, to do architecture? And I don't know what your influences were. I mean, mine was uh, somebody I was at school with, um, her dad was an architect. And I thought, oh, what's that? You know, and I thought I could do that, I can draw. But it really was kind of that random. So just want to ask a question. I don't know if anyone else wants to answer that as well. Maybe not you, actually. But, <laughs> but oh, maybe you. Yeah, um, you know, what made you uh, take that leap? Um, uh, the right answer would be I love drawing and I love the sciences and uh, that's the reason why. But actually, probably not. Um, to be truly honest, I think it's that... One of the ways that I recognised, or my family recognised, to get out of the situation we're in, or the kind of disadvantage we're at, was education. At the time when we were going to school, it was free. Well, not free, but it was still a thousand pound for your fee, so it was affordable. Um, and I think we saw that as a way out of a ticket out of poverty, out of the situation we're in. Um, and I always had this impression that somehow being an architect, we're going to make loads of money. And I'm so mistaken, and I really should have thought about banking instead. Um, but I think it was really, the motivation was to get an education, uh, whether it was, and I think it, architecture felt like it had a, a status. And I think when you're in a situation where you've come from a very, you know, disadvantaged background, you, privilege is, or status is really important. Um, and that's that was a motivation, really. Not only motivation, but one of them. There you go. Okay. Um, so, oh. Oh, you're going to have a question. All right. I'm going to go. Um, thanks, Helen. Sorry. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in just going back to privilege a little bit because we've got Fergus and Abe who have kindly come along with, you know, in some ways privileged background because of their fathers, but also in other ways, and their, and their mothers, yeah, and their whole family. And, 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 I, and I think it's interesting because I think there's an identification of privilege which can be quickly drawn into a stereotype yeah and i think um, certain forms of privilege is about acknowledging certain privileges uh, but also accepting certain privileges maybe criticizing certain 
certain privileges as well. No, I would say I was quite privileged. My dad's in the room tonight, and who's your daddy talk, and I feel privileged that he's come along to, to talk here. Um, but also I think if you're, if you're in a, a, a level of privilege, I think you have to be aware of your situation. You have to almost criticize it or kind of a, um, be able to um, point out where it might be going wrong. And I think Ziona, I maybe want to go back to you because you're sort of criticizing the privileged white male always getting awards, for example. You know, I think that is a good form of criticism about privileged class or a privileged kind of um, pattern that has been for a while. And, and that, that's kind of where I'm I want. I want to see if we can have a few people talking about privilege. And Diana, I also wanted to know what made you want to be an architect in the first place, coming from a banking background, is that right? So. I'm not an architect. Um, I'm a social anthropologist and a town planner and an interior designer in three separate swipes in three different continents by training. And I think I've always been a kind of outsider who's followed my own path. So I was first generation South African. I was the only girl uh, daughter in a patriarchy. Um, I came to, I fell into social anthropology by chance. I was actually interested in studying architecture. Uh, my father had told me that he would never commission a building from a female architect. And I wasn't very good at maths. So I thought, well, how would anything that I generate stand up? You know, no one told me I wouldn't be responsible for those calculations. So I fell into social anthropology, which I'd never heard of, and discovered the significance and engagement of culture and social plur plurality. And uh, sort of became very rapidly successful in academia, but I wanted to be applied. So I came to London, went to the Bartlett, applied to do town planning. Uh, I was asked what on earth social anthropology had to do with the built environment and said, you've got to be joking. Now, no one would ask that question today. You know, there has been a lot of shift. And after doing a lot of research on user experience of different settings, I decided that I wanted to have a voice at the design table. Not to design, but to able to commentate. So, interesting uh, uh, hearing your experience as an outsider and also very fascinated by your um, challenge to the significance of words. Because a lot of my experience has been people looking to me uh, as someone who's really helpful in articulating and eliciting what they feel, what they'd like to say, but which they can't express. I cannot tell you how many times clients and you know most of my work is user research i cannot tell you how many times people have said to me i'm so grateful you've really put into words what i wanted to say but i couldn't find the words to do it so i would say that words do also have a place uh you know people do say you've held up a mirror to me and allowed me to see myself and to express it uh, I'm not sure that I've answered the question, but I've kind of forgotten what it was. <laughs> you mentioned in your, um, 
in your emails to me about um, perhaps there's a certain assumptions that are made by other people in your industry about how you get projects. Do you think that there's an overarching sense of, uh, I think there's quite a sense of jealousy in the industry anyway. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, tall poppy syndrome in, in the industry. As soon as you get big, people try and knock you down no matter what background you come from. So can you talk, through you, talk us through a little bit more about your experiences of that or, you know, your standpoint on that? Because I think it's quite yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think like most practices, you know, we don't win most of the stuff we go for, but we've got some really quite kind of some, some reasonably high profile projects, I guess, and that, has, that, that leads to a certain impression. Um, I don't think, um, I mean, you know, we like, I think the trouble is like most people who are in the industry know just how bloody hard everyone works and you know that, so there's, there's no point in saying, you know, that we kind of work any harder. Everyone is committed throughout the kind of, you know, the weekends when you're, when you're toiling away on a commission. I mean, we won a, a Malcolm Redding competition. It took us nine months and it went from 153 people down to two and eventually we won it. But, you know, we were, there's a massive risk in something like that. So I think, I think architects are not very strategic and we spend a lot of time, like, trying to be strategic and constantly trying to get under the skin of of every aspect of of a job so if we're asked to go and tender a job you know what do you do you go to you go to see it doesn't matter where it is you're not serious if you don't get to meet the client and we, it's for us it's all about relationships but relationships that we're making along the way and maintaining those that we've already got so um, I think you know there is there is you know privilege is kind of behind lots of things, but equally, it reaches a point where you are kind of making making your own privilege. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, I, I do get a bit fed up being told that I get, we win all our jobs because of my dad. And I'm like, well, he just died 15 years ago and will that ever change? But um, I'm sure, you know, these things have an impact, but yeah. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, oh, Zan. Um, I just, do you want to say to Fergus that you come with an endowment? You come with an endowment that started from a very young age of visual exposure, of language with which to express it. And of course it gives one a head start. You know, it might be that there are clients out there who are dying to do something with someone who's, you know, totally fresh, raw, different. But by and large, the endowment that you come with there's no criticism. It is just a massive advantage. And I, I think there's this comment on that. I think that, that is true. But I remember when I started at university, I was like, well, I come from an architect's background. I probably, I can probably handle, I can build stuff. I've been like making stuff all the time. First year, I came here at the bottom of the year. And like, you know, gratitude to, like, they published the results and everything. And I was like, right, I've got to rethink everything. Any assumptions I've made. where they came from, what their grades were. I don't care anything about that. But in my mind, I have a, a kind of a mental curve of where they're heading. And so that's what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in whether that's a kind of, it's a constant learning kind of acceleration or whether actually somebody's kind of plateauing or, or whatever it might be. So, yeah. Anyway. All right. We have a question from the very lovely Elise. 
Um, it seems to me in conversations like this in architecture and also in the arts, um, people um, talk about their privilege and acknowledge it and that kind of takes away any kind of ownership of that privilege or any motivation to actually do something to change the system. I'd be really interested to know how you, all you fantastic people with great careers, if you are so concerned about privilege, how would you actually do something to change the system that we're in right now? So, um, in response to your question, uh, response to a couple of questions, as a white, now middle class male, um, endowed with white male privilege and all that bullshit, um, first of all, I name my practice Baxendale, that's my mum's maiden name, one up for my mum, nice one, <laughs> just in response to the uh, kind of point made before. In terms of your own uh, question, <laughs> it, it, my, my um, all, up, ninety-nine percent of all of my work over the last fifteen years has been in communities that would be described as exceptionally marginalised and peripheral, and I decided that I would kind of deal with the question that you asked by trying to place architecture and design on a conversation around these things in places where that was exceptionally alien. And also in terms of this uh, career move I've made recently where I've kind of rejected an opportunity to teach down here or in Manchester or Sheffield or wherever and I've gone to Preston at the University of Central Lancashire, former Polytechnic. We're struggling to get 30, 40 people in to first year. Um, and you know the kind of the background of the people who are coming into that school of architecture. You know that when, when I taught the Mac, I didn't have students who had two or three kids and were only 20 years old and were working three jobs. And you know, so for me, I felt like there was a real opportunity to kind of answer the question that you that, that you're asking by going back to somewhere that was familiar, where when I was growing up, the thought that there would be an architecture school in Preston just seemed like, you know, it, it would never have crossed my mind that, that one day that would, that would happen. So that's kind of what, what I'm trying to do to kind of um, respond to my own acknowledgement of my own privilege, whatever that is. Um, I also want to briefly mention in terms of the kind of uh, white male privilege kind of stuff, is that statistically at the moment, young, white, non or working class males are killing themselves at a statistically higher rate than anyone in this country. And as I kind of look at the profession at the moment, um, I'm seeing really great movements to increase diversity in loads of ways, but I'm still struggling to see the people I work with in housing estates in Glasgow and Preston, young, white, male, uh, boys and lads actually coming into this profession or going to university. And increasingly those people are demonized, they're demonized as racist, they're demonized as misogynist, they're demonized either on the other side by not trying hard enough, by not aspiring hard enough. And there is a kind of population of um, people there that I think are increasingly getting forgotten within these conversations. And, uh, and because they're white and male, they're increasingly even more forgotten about within these kind of uh, these narratives, and I just want to flag that. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of flag that, not as a as a critique of any other 
movement to increase diversity, but the, 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 there's some people out there who are also vulnerable and they also happen to be white and male and we shouldn't forget about them. Thanks. I'd just like to go back to what I talked about, because I think it is partially a response to that. And the uh, emphasis that I've placed on teachers being so bitter now that they can no longer do the thoughtful, perceptive teaching, nudging, facilitation is a really profound loss in this country. It means that people get lost at a very early age. And also the point that I made about Sure Start, which was one fantastically successful, innovative program that really co-opted people at a very early stage of parenting into the kinds of pathways that would promote their children's development along the line. These are really big political issues. They're not architectural issues. They're not problems that can be solved by this sector as an architectural sector. There are very big social problems that require all of our impetus and participation and, and forcefulness to resolve. I'm just going to butt in, sorry, Abe, just one second. I think that's a really good point, and it kind of answers your question earlier, I think, because that early skills training is kind of connected with what Lee's saying, in my view, where you've got to try and get out there and actually make, ed make, make, make people realize that I loved a little, yeah, so that they can actually be um, um, given the kind of social tools or the learn tools and how to deal with just everyday life. The thing with sorry, the thing with putting the onus on teachers on state education to do more outreach when they're already working solid hours with minimal pay. Again, it just kind of reduces the onus, the onus of leaders in the architecture industry, in the arts, to actually kind of get out of their office, get out of London, get out of their safe spaces, and actually make a change if they're that bothered. That, that would be my only comment in regards to that. I think ab absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, we all go, you know, I go and do talks in Preston for Emily Campbell to, 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 to young schools, and you see amazing creative kids. You know, we all do stuff for, for free. We, you know, working on St. Mary's Pediatrics. You know, the NHS is such a crazy place to work that it's easier not to get paid than to get... That. But more important than that, I think it's for... For, you know, I'm not an architect, as I keep saying, I'm a designer, but to be more open-minded and to bring people into the studio from different backgrounds, because it's that level of corruption that starts to change the way that you, that you work. And for me, the biggest problem that architecture has at the moment is people sit in bubbles in these very, very defined disciplines, talking to the, to the, to the same people. And it, until we can break out of those bubbles and have a wider conversation, which is about more things than just architecture, there is more to architecture than architecture. More people use architecture than architects. So let's open up the conversation. Let's have people who haven't got degrees, who have graphic degrees, who have different ways of seeing things and sensibilities, working in a studio together. Let's work with artists. Let's you know, let's open it up and let's stop this linear obsession that a seven-year degree is the only way to build a building. I agree with almost what everyone's saying. Um, I think I want to raise something about actually, you know, how do we really tackle privilege? And I think it's about 
recognizing and truly reflecting because I think that's one of the things that a lot of the I find liberal left don't do enough of they recognize it but don't do enough of is say you know ask those really serious questions what is my unconscious bias um, and that the moment you tackle that is the moment you tackle privilege um, and I give you an example of what I mean is sometimes there's this thing that happens to me is people often would turn around when I've done something good oh well done you've done a really good job you know especially you've done a really good and but they wouldn't say to um, Fergus over there oh, Fergus you've done this good job they wouldn't they'll just accept it and it's that thing where I have to be I am told I've done really well because then by saying that you set the bar to say actually your bar was lower so therefore you know you've done really well to get to that bar I think that's one of the things that being conscious about is important conscious and reflective now I feel bad for saying well done after your speech. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, great point. Um, any other questions from the audience? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, let's go. Gentleman there and then maybe at the back. Yes, I, uh, I wanted to connect to... I like very much the intervention of Steve before and I wanted to connect to some remarks. And there's been a lot of talking about privilege uh, tonight uh, and looking at that aspect... Uh, Huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So it doesn't say it's uh, uh, who's your daddy. It doesn't talk about that. Then you can choose the word to describe it. Uh, somehow there is also you know, what to say. You don't get to choose your parents. You get to choose your profession. So and for me, it's not much. Uh, it's about what you do with it uh, rather than the, uh, whether you are the son or the daughter of. Uh, 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 people that are very successful or somehow already uh, and maybe to give you an advantage so there is one story that I like very much is the story of Porsche and uh, how the son and uh, the, the father and the son had completely opposing views of what the future would be so just to give you an example to make it very short the father brainchild was the Beetle, the car for everybody the son brainchild was the Porsche 911 what we know now is probably the most iconic uh, uh, car around so what I want to say is also, there is also a positive aspect in that, in what uh, a generation can feed back into the other and create innovation and maybe going to also what was talked before, possibly even changing the system. But this is a very, very linear male conversation of, of two great, very privileged people building great cars together. I don't think it really contributes towards the discussion, which is how to deal with a profession that is in crisis because of over-profession and lack of accessibility. Yeah, no, I was not talking about the privilege. I was talking about uh, the, the, the positive aspect that you can look into. There is also some positive, possibly. I mean, did you... Does it work? Yay. <laughs> so I often get the question if I would join a panel, if I'm invited just because I'm a female. And I always reply, hell yeah. Because I think we just need to get our story out there more often. Um, privilege is an issue. Um, I recognize that, but I think the real danger is to the people we design for. So traditionally, cities are designed by men and made for a, like a male lifestyle. So you find um, maybe a laundrette next to the office or a gym but much rarer a nursery or something that actually makes city life a little bit easier for women. Um, 
Same goes for design of toilets. When I'm in a meeting and I have 20 men and I have to explain why a hand wash basin in the toilet is really important, especially for women who want to live a sustainable lifestyle, it's never going to get through. So this keeps on that women are always a step behind and that doesn't only that doesn't only count for women, I talk because I am one, that's for everybody. So I think to have a diverse uh, design team is crucial to make place for a diverse society, city or countryside. It's not a question, but people might react, like to react to it. <laughs> I, th I think um, the, d the discussion around accessibility that was being raised there, I think, is, to be honest, the critical question about the profession. And yesterday was the um, UCLan Open Day, and uh, I was flooded with parents and uh, their children thinking about doing architecture. And I was trying to say to some of those parents that at the moment, what I'm really interested in is how we get the bricklayer who over five or 10 years of laying bricks starts to develop an affinity towards design, architecture and craft, starts drawing what he's making, uh, starts considering how to, to build better, more interesting. How does that person come into the profession without then having to go back somewhere and get kind of two A stars and an A? You know, I mean, that's unacceptable to me that it's hard for that person who is probably that passionate and has a real amazing knowledge around construction to not, you know, for it to be very difficult to turn around and say, yeah, come in, come in, come in at first year, come in at second year. It's the same with someone who might have spent, you know, five or six years working within fabrics or textiles or working within in different industries and have a huge amount of practical knowledge or social knowledge and experience. practical knowledge. knowledge, it's the yeah, knowledge, it's the, 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 the sense of aesthetics that you learn yeah. from laying those bricks and understanding those ribbons, even greater than, than, you know, than, 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 than the greatest bricklaying architect. You know, it, it's zoom, to, zoom talk all over. And, and, and I think we, we, we're currently at that entry level into architecture. There is not enough routes of accessibility in the profession. And recently there's been kind of talks about, you know, the kind of apprenticeship model and things like that. but. We need to say, actually, forget about what I'm trying to say where I'm teaching is I don't care what your grades are. You sit in front of me, you show me some stuff you've done, we have a conversation, and if I think that you've got the energy, the empathy, the attitude, a talent, a skill, then I want you in my university and I don't give a shit what is kind of sitting next to your name in terms of a bunch of letters because I get people who've got three A's and they're bone idle, can't hold a conversation, and I won't want to spend more than five minutes in the company, you know. So, <laughs> kind of like, right, how do, I get how do I get rid of them and get a few more of them? And, and, you know, it's not one or the other, but at the moment, it is very much geared towards one and not the other, I think. Um, me, me, Paolo, and Hugh, who got a small office just across the road, we, we've worked for... Um, um, two or three developers over the past year who have very wealthy sons um, who are, in effect, probably more privileged than anyone else in the room. And the developer life, or the developers that we know and work for on certain kind of profit-driven jobs, 
they're not interested on the bricklayer being trained or the welfare t or, the, or, the, or the contribution ways into work or anything like that. They're interested in getting the cheapest labor they possibly can where they can avoid doing any kind of training, any kind of bricklaying. Exactly. They, they avoid bricklayers like the plague. They try to package it up to make it simple as possible, and it drives us nuts because basically they're getting all of their profit and feeding it into their spoiled sons. Problem, structural problem. It's about the pressure of profit and construction. Yeah. Okay. All right. We um, we're over time. I'm not bored for the record, Lee. I'm not drawing the I'm not drawing the uh, the talk <laughs> discussion to a close because of that. Um, can we have one more one more question over over there? Okay. Sorry, just a quick, quick, quick observation. Um, why are you so concerned about making bricklayers into architects? Why don't we pick up on the point that Abe was making, that surely we should be breaking down hierarchies within um, the architects' firms so you get much more sort of diverse application to skills and things. But breaking down hierarchies so we're not making the god of the architect, as it were, but spreading out the kind of love. Well, I don't think the two things are exclusive. And I'm not obsessed with getting bricklayers into architecture. Yeah. I just use it as an example on how, at certain points, people who are working within all fields of life might at some point think, actually, I would like to go into this. I would like to design buildings. And at the moment, it is very hard for that to happen. Now, the point you're raising for me it's just another issue in a whole list of issues that we have to deal with. Um, and the kind of hierarchical system of the profession, which maybe is still dominated um, by white men, um, is perhaps an issue. But I also don't mind hierarchies myself. It just depends on who occupies them, how they occupy them, and whether they allow access to other people to kind of inhabit that hierarchy. I've always liked having someone or something else to kind of either inform me, inspire me, or aspire towards. Now, the issue for me is that actually quite often that kind of route to uh, moving within a system tends to get shut down by people as soon as they acquire a certain amount of privilege and power. Um, and kind of our kind of role is to try and make sure that that doesn't happen for me, um, but it happens too often. I mean, that's why I end up working for myself, to be honest, because I couldn't be asked trying to make my way in a company. <laughs> 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 I know, I know, yeah, I know. No, I'm a total hypocrite. I'm <laughs> 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 actually fucking minted, and I don't just like, no, no, no. Uh, that sort of voice is nothing like this. <laughs> it's a... Uh, Privilege, right? I mean, if we all say, if we get to this kind of, if we get can't to this, you. you can't hear me. God, thank you. Um, but once, if you, even if you got to a point where you have um, a profession that's fully diverse, we're still, what's the, we're designing, are we able to design for the unprivileged by being privileged? And that's something that's almost not been touched on because we're talking about parity within the profession. What happens when we get there? Because we're out of sync, really, with, you know, we're not talking about, um, we have a privileged position, but we don't really challenge the uh, institutions that are in charge of delivering the architecture. And we actually, if we're honest, we don't really deliver, we're not in control of delivering the architecture. No, I think that was Steve's 
point essentially is that actually who owns our service increasingly is not interested in the things that we are interested in or would like to be interested in. They're interested in maximizing the return on investment. And yeah, but it's a long way from where the president is. The social fishers will invite you up and say, can we have Neve Brown painting yeah. stuff which is about trying to take progress? Neve Brown, of course, is an incredibly privileged person from another privileged background, another white man. But so he's just going towards a greater, more utopic solution rather than developing which is yeah, but you have an irony, don't you? I mean, the, one of the talks in this series was about the Peabody estate, and you've got George Peabody as a banker. You'd say very privileged, but he sees slum conditions and chooses to do something about them. So it's, you know, you can see how privilege works in the favour of the common man, but I, I wonder whether we're, we're sort of hitting a middle road, which really doesn't do either. Okay. Um, right, I'm going to interrupt this from uh, white, white men and um, hand over... <laughs> I think it's just it kind of follows on from some of the discussions we've just had now. Um, I think maybe it's about making architecture, to make architecture more accessible is to not have such a long course. I mean, seven years, why, are we, why do we have architecture for so long? Seven years, lots of things can happen in your life. Seven years means you stop for seven years and don't do anything in your life but architecture. For a lot of people, that isn't feasible. They can't afford to do that. And I think we need to not have such a long course. How are we doing for time? We all right? Yeah. We have a question. That man's had his arm up for a long time. Let's go over to that man. Yeah. Hang on. I, I did really enjoy fucking around for seven years. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> 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 okay. I'd make a 12-year course. Hi. So, um, oh, I think this is on. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting to hear the subjective perspectives in the room this evening. Um, but I'm wondering, like, objectively, who is studying this and who's collecting data on this? And if we don't study this and if we don't collect data on class in the profession, um, it strikes me that we can't really understand the geometry of the problem. And if we don't first understand it, then it's difficult to really um, have a kind of informed conversation about um, how we kind of move forward. So. Uh, it's sort, sort of a point and a question. Yeah. Um, uh, when I spoke to um, actually one of our panellists from the REBA um, discussion today, and we were talking about um, their work in collecting data, I was like, how on earth would you, um, what questions would you ask to ascertain someone's class? That's an incredibly difficult data set to get. Um, and we didn't reach a conclusion. So, um, yeah, it's in, you need to get the data there to understand it, but how do you understand it? Does anyone have any I mean, other thoughts on that? I mean, just to come back on that, it's quite interesting. Um, what, <laughs> um, so what Fergus was saying about, you know, doing a survey within his practice to see, like, have people been to private school? Like, are their parents architects? Like, so I think, you know, potentially there's some quite basic things that, that could be starting points. But, yeah, I agree, it's a complex issue. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I've got some points here. Hang on. She's got a microphone. Cool. Um, so just, just on your point there... Um, there's a book recently published called The Class Ceiling, which is uh, looking at lots of different professions, including architecture. And um, so they looked at the kind of class in, inside different professions. And then in a large London practice, they found that there was uh, no discernible class ceiling in practice. And that was done interviewing like lots of different people, academics, are they not kind of RIBA based. So just wondered what people thought about that. I mean, 
obviously we've not read it, but <laughs> um, I just thought it was an interesting counterpoint to that. It's basically saying that because things are, things are tangible, people can't get away with bullshitting so much. So I'm not saying all this stuff isn't true, but... <laughs> I, th I think that's really interesting in that like, we would never, ever dream of employing anyone if they were not the best person because it's like cutting off you know, your nose to spite your face. You know, you just, I think, and the same when somebody's employing an architect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. And we don't, when we, when we, well, we do require portfolios, but we don't look at their grades. You know, I never look at their grades. I flick through it very quickly. You know, you're just like, is there any talent? And you don't look at the name. You don't look at any of that stuff. You know, I mean, it's all kind of, it's very quick to kind of get a sense of whether there's quality there. And, uh, and so I think, I think in that respect, you know, the same when, when we're going for jobs, you know, normally, like, oh, sure, we're massively privileged. We're nothing like as privileged as the people we're going up against. And you're just trying to find a way in. You, every, no matter where you are, you're trying to find a way of getting ahead and trying to show that you understand the people or, or that you can add value. And so, you know, like, yes, there's privilege everywhere, but I think this thing about architects being, in, being insular, I think that's a massive fundamental problem. Like, why are we so fucking arrogant that we're just kind of, you know, hanging out together and not looking at other industries, not looking at other companies? I mean, it's like when you look at architects' websites, they're just the most kind of vain shit websites you can <laughs> ever see. And they don't give you the information. You're trying to work out... You know, who's there? Who works there? Like, when we find out who looks at our website, everyone just looks at... They want to know who's working there. They look at the culture. They look at the practice. They look at all that other stuff. And it's not just about kind of a pretty picture. So I think... Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think following today, when I went through the practice and was like, where are we all from? What's the background? I was like, okay, now I want to find, you know, what the, what another, what the right matrix should be in terms of, you know, like, actually, should we be a bit more interventionist about this? Like, only in the, I don't know, maybe we just say, well, instead of interviewing kind of five people, we're going to always interview a, a sixth, and that sixth person is going to be an outsider who we wouldn't have otherwise. Or I don't know what it would be, but I, I think... You know, it's still, it's just making sure that there's the opportunity for quality to come through, but also, and being really blind to, you know, all of that, the, the cultural baggage that we all have, or, or not baggage, but kind of cap cultural capital, and trying to say, well, somebody else didn't have that privilege, but look at what they've done. That's what I mean about that kind of trajectory as well, so. Can I, can I kind of raise, put what, you're, what you've just said into context? Um, my brother-in-law over there is, he probably doesn't want me to point to him, but he's a youth worker and he works with lots of people in my, lots of young boys from the Bangladeshi community in my land. And I wonder how those boys can put together a portfolio, be confident enough, be competent enough to put together a portfolio and come to you and show it to you. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's the thing that you, you talk about people that are... That's where the schools are terrible. It, when I was teaching, I was so fucked off that the teachers were not, at the end of the year, what's more important is actually saying to people, right, you've got to go out and you've got to present this back to people. Like, if you've studied architecture, you've got to be able to present yourself in loads of different formats. But it really upset me that the schools spat people out and they said, right, you know, you've got a top student who then, who was shit at formatting work, 
and they don't, and you find out where they went on to work. And I thought, why is there no follow-up? Why is there no kind of aftercare? Yeah, I'm talking about people from other places just to get into architecture I, school. I, actually, what I you agree. Wanna, it's, yeah. it's a challenge, but otherwise, you're saying, well, okay, come up and you know, come for an interview. I mean, we've got. There's got to be some ways of finding an initial introduction, and I'm yes. not saying that it's the right way, but I would have said that if you meet people face to face, there's then all of that privilege and cultural background. You know, that's when people get ahead. So I think I think it's not perfect. But you're not going to when you receive some of these boys, you're not going to get that amazing talent, that trajectory is that you're looking at. You're probably looking at somebody that has no confidence, that's going to come along with nothing to their name, and you ask, uh, what they're asking, what, what they might be asking you to do is take a, take a risk on them, take a punt on them, and it's asking that, that level of risk, yeah. that's, rather than, actually, it's all about the architect school not doing well enough, but whoever no, there's comes a, there's through... There's an element of risk every time, and I would absolutely say that, and I think, you know, some of the people we've got in our practice now and coming through in the past... There's been, they are, they're kind of, there's, a, there's an element of risk, absolutely. But I think what we, you know, I'm just, we try to be as fair as possible. I'm not saying it's perfect, but if, if somebody has a kind of a formula or a matrix for making it more fair, I think, you know, good on them. But at the moment, reviewing portfolios effectively blind without names and universities and grades is, it's a matrix and it's a form that we apply. But. Okay. Okay, we're going to make this the last question. That lady's have her hand up for ages. Sorry. <laughs> I would just like to say I admire what everyone is doing, but one thing I keep hearing, and it seems that people who feel privileged or are privileged, like it's a negative thing. It's not. You are who you are. You're born into what you're born into. What is different and what people should be seeing is, okay, if I am privileged, how can it be my privilege to help you? How can architects and architectural companies, not the teachers, the teachers are doing their best with the little money, the little time, the little sleep and trying to have a life. They're doing the best they can. Its onus is on the architects, the architectural companies, the architecture institutions. How can you get diversity and people of no education or uh, no articulation to come into your practices and bring diversity? That is what should be being asked. How can it be my privilege to help you? Not, oh, I'm privileged. Who cares? We are all born into what we're born into. What can we do with it? That's what we should be attacking. Okay. okay. Um, I think everyone agrees. I, I, I think we should just end it there and continue the conversation because we're going to have a, a dog barking in the background and what have you. So um, let's continue the conversation informally. The panellists will stick around for a little while, I reckon. So if you want to have a chat to them, I'm going to speak on their behalf. You can do. Um, otherwise, thank you, panellists, um, and thank you, audience. Um, let's continue the dialogue over a beer or a Negroni or two. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. <laughs>